You're listening to Unravel, the podcast where we go behind and beyond stories featured at our monthly live show. From Shanghai, I'm your host, Clara Davis. Okay, I have an announcement to make. I am no longer accepting applications for white friends. <laughs> Hear me out. Hear me out. Okay, so I grew up going to all-black Catholic school on the south side of Chicago, and I was a fucking nerd. But that actually paid off for me because I ended up getting this. Academic scholarship to go to school on the East Coast. I've always been a real like glance before you leap type, so I'm like, oh man, come on, I got this. I watched a 45-minute promotional video. I can totally handle moving to another place that I've for four years that I've never even seen. I'm on campus. I'm like, what? Where the fuck are the street lamps? Is that white dude wearing dreads with an ankle bracelet? What the fuck is hacky sack? What is this place? And suddenly it hits me, Clement. This place is white. For four years, I had amazing instructors, but I feel my true education was in engaging, charming, and disarming whiteness. So by the time I made it to Shanghai, having mostly white friends, I was like an expert-level white whisperer. Today's episode features Clemen Courtney III. Clem is in rare company, having lived in Shanghai for over 13 years now. He's a writer, a teacher, and an entrepreneur with his own company, The Right Place. He told a story back at our Lost in Translation show in the spring of 2018. It was a story which made some people ask questions, made some people uncomfortable, and made some people come up and tell him just how much they could relate. We loved getting Clem into the studio to talk more about one of the more memorable tales to hit the unravel stage. A fair warning to our listeners: this episode features explicit language and racial slurs that may not be suitable for young listeners. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Clem. You came to Shanghai 13 years ago.、Mm-hmm. That's a crazy amount of time. What brought you out here? Well, I studied Chinese、uh, in high school, <laughs> so my mom brought me home a pair of chopsticks when I was like nine, and she taught me how to eat Chinese food with them. And on the packaging was this really cool writing. I'll never really forget it: red packaging, gold and black like calligraphy.、Hmm. And I thought it was so cool that I, I I thought to myself like one day I'm going to be able to read what's on this package. So <laughs> when I went to prep school, they had a really advanced language program. They offered like ten languages, and Chinese was one of them.、Uh, so it was a no-brainer for me to pick Chinese, which is funny because in 1996 everybody was like, "What are you going to do with Chinese?" And now it's like, "What what can't you do with it?" So it's really cool. But I was not that forward-thinking. I just thought the writing was cool. It was just about those chopsticks. <laughs> That's it. Just about the chopsticks. I love that. I don't really feel like I meet that many people whose origin story 
to Shanghai reached that far back into their childhood. Mm. What job took you here first? Did you come on a whim or did you have something lined up? Well, I was not brave enough to come here without a job. Like, no way. So Stupid, brave. <laughs> I'm referring to myself. <laughs> yeah, I was not brave enough for that. I'm always, like, really in awe of people who can do that because I'm like, what do you do for money? So in my case. Not have much. Right, exactly. Um, but now I get to tell cool stories, too. Like, I came here with $250 in my pocket, but I already had a job waiting on me, though. I started teaching kindergarten. Uh, I got three job offers. One was in like this really rural town in a village. And they were like, oh, you can stay here. But the catch is like if you room and board is like you have to sleep in the room with the children. And I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. Grown man sleeping with like small <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> My interest in this job and giving back just went from like 85 percent to zero percent very quickly. And then one was in Beijing and the other Shanghai. And I chose Shanghai because I thought it was the city where I would experience the least amount of culture shock. Even though you were passionate about those chopsticks, you didn't want to feel the max (laughs) amount of rural China village culture shock? I think I knew myself well enough to know, like, do you have a McDonald's? Jump into the shallow. Right, exactly. But I can only imagine how different Shanghai must have felt Mm. 13 years ago. Yeah, for Western food, I had to walk at least like 20 minutes. I lived in a really, like the suburbs actually of Shanghai, uh, Xinjiang. And that was, uh, that was an experience, but I loved that, that area because it was like a really good introduction. Um, I, I move here and I'm like, oh, don't even bring your iPod. Just really get immersed in the culture. <laughs> and by after, after a month of like hearing the noises of Shanghai. Who um, needs an iPod? Who I did, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay, so we're going to get into the story that you told because mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a favorite of so many. You first wrote this piece on Medium or mm-hmm. something like it, right. and a mutual friend showed it to me, and I think she's who sort of asked if you'd be interested in converting it into a story. Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between writing and telling that story? I think I always use a lot more flowery prose when I write, but you can't really tell a story that way um, if it's just like a natural organic storytelling event. Um, So you have to, I had to rewrite it as a speech almost and then memorize the general, the the bullet points of what I wanted wanted to say and convey and like the emotional beats and all of the stuff that goes into making it a compelling story to be told. Yeah, I felt like when I was reading your story versus listening to your story, there were definitely some intentional changes. Mm. Do you think that that was purposeful or was that kind of also a little bit about spur of the moment? Um, there were very few spur of the moment uh, sections of my... <laughs> Good for you. I don't think you realize how nervous I was to to even be talking to that many people, like... I couldn't eat the whole day. So there weren't a lot of like flourishes I was really confident to add. There were a few maybe small things, but not not like big ticket items or, or anything. The biggest thing I think was probably the change in the, the line. Uh, like I'm no longer accepting uh, applications for white friends uh, because my title for the medium piece is like why I'm no longer accepting white applicants for friendship which is kind of a mouthful to get out um so i practiced 
how I wanted to deliver it because, again, I was so nervous and I wanted to, like, you know, knock it out of the park the first time. So I worked with my friend John, who's a public speaking trainer, and he said, that line's really clunky. You got to do something with it. So uh, you should make it more like a declaration. And I thought, okay, I like the sound of the firm punch. So I like that. It was a gut punch. (laughs) I'm happy to hear that. I feel like when you opened it and closed with it, you could kind of hear the air go out of the room. Mm. Was that intentional? Definitely. Definitely. And I think, uh, I don't know if you remember my hugging you uh, before I told the story, because like as white people go, you're one of the whitest types of people. Like, <laughs> like go no, on. No, no, no. Hear me, hear me out. Okay, so it, you're you're a redhead. You don't get much whiter than a redhead, right? So, <laughs> okay, so true. I thought, okay, how funny will it be for me to uh, hug Clara and then say, by the way, I'm no longer talking to white people anymore. They're like, but you just. But you just gave her that great hug. Right. Does she know that? Right, right. Because you even said something like, oh, hugging before the story? Or you had like, you said something really quickly, like you were taken aback by it, but you you thought it was pretty funny. funny. Yeah. I don't know if I told you this afterwards or not, but it was definitely a very talked about story. Mm. I overheard two people at a party arguing about it. Really? One of our producers also overheard or kind of was confronted with an argument about it at a dinner. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so interested to know what the argument was. Yeah, it's a little bit crazy. I mean, I, I guess I'm first curious if you were expecting that type of reaction. Yes. Um, yes, for sure. And uh, I'm really kind of happy to hear you say that that happened. It's meant to make people uncomfortable in a way. Like, I tried to use so much of the rhetoric to evoke an emotion in the audience. Uh, that would be like, okay, under, understand the issue as I see it or as a person of color might see it. In retrospect, the first group of core white friends I made here was due to an encounter with a racist. My... Early 20s here were a, a blur, right? So, but I know I spent a lot of time in a really unapologetic dive bar called I Love Shanghai. And this really ugly American type came and he was a regular there. And we never really talked and I never gave it much thought. But one day he pulled me aside and he was like, hey man, like, I don't know if you noticed, but I've been kind of cold to you. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess. And he's... Like, yeah, well, I guess, I mean, you seem like a nice guy, but I, I don't like black people. So I sit at this table full of future white friends, and I have to recount the story. And shortly after, he comes over and tries to initiate a conversation with them. And he is slapped with a stony silence, a resounding shun from the group. And I think to myself, man, these are some white people I can fuck with. (laughs) Over the years, we get closer, but there was always this one dude who was part of the group, like more of an acquaintance to me than a friend, who I will henceforth refer to as this motherfucker. (laughs) This motherfucker always set off my whitey sense which is a lot like Spidey Sense, but it mostly serves to alert non-whites 
to uh, racist whites that may be in the vicinity. Right. So eventually, like when they told me, the mutual friends told me that he'd said some racist things, I was like, yeah, well, you know, not surprised. Right. Uh, and because I was so used to dealing with like white microaggressions, even I wasn't as bothered as I should have been. The important thing to remember about this motherfucker is that he had his own education company. And at the same time, I was a rather talented English teacher working my way up Shanghai's education ladder. And the same white friends would be like, I wonder why he doesn't hire you. And I'm like, really? You have to wonder? Is that something you need to wonder? This wasn't the first time Clem had encountered explicit racism or the baffled reactions from friends who didn't seem to understand. I talked to him about the message he wanted people to take away from his story and the reactions the story generated after he published it and after he told it on the stage. If there was one thing that you wanted people in the audience to take away from that story, mm. I mean, what would that? What, what was the message to you? Uh, to me, it was think about what it means to be an ally to a person of color if you really care about people of color. Uh, if you know, do you put? Do you expect them to navigate situations with racism, casual or otherwise, um, or you're like casually racist parents or? you know, relatives or friends with, like, this sort of stoicism. It's like, oh, it's okay. They're, they're just a product the of their are, time. Yeah, yeah it's th- this whole idea that we don't even get to be, like, righteously angry about it and be like, listen, if you can't ride for me like a friend all the time, then why are we friends? I wanted white people to ask themselves, like, am I deserving? Am I, like, being an ally in a way that makes me deserving of friendships with people of color, period? Someone came up to me, a white guy came up to me after... And he, he he was determined to argue me down about what I'd written. He was really pleasant about it. And we, we had an exchange, but there was one part where he, he said, oh, I, I've adopted uh, six African kids. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's good for you. And then he was like, well, to me, they're blacker than you are. And I was like, wait, let me let me stop you there and make sure that you know that you're not an arbiter of blackness for anyone. As, as a white person, or even if you're black, you don't get to, like, determine what makes a person, like, blacker or not. <laughs> what, was the, what was the premise of his argument that he confronted you with? I think he was trying to uh, parlay that into a point of, like, I should be careful about the way I was speaking about it. Like, I felt like maybe, I knew there would be maybe some white people in the audience that felt like I didn't give white people a fair shake. But after you hear the story, which is the power of stories, like uh, hopefully it made the white people who may have been uncomfortable think about why I was wrong. Because if you investigate the story, it's hard to be like, well, he's wrong to feel that way. I'm curious about kind of the scope of reactions you got, both from posting the piece in written form and then telling the story live. 
Mm. Actually, most of my, you know, most of my friends for a long time, as I mentioned in the piece that I wrote, were white. So I feel like a big part of it was I tried not to take it easy on myself either. Like, okay, well, you did kind of put your own culture, your own identity on the back burner to to be able to better assimilate into this group. Because when you go to prep school, you're like the only one. I think there were maybe 50, no, there were probably about, at Northfield Mount Hermon, there were probably about 80 to 100 black people. Out of? Um, out of 1,100 to 1,200 students. Yeah, most of the time you're the only one in the room. Mm. You get a few like microaggressions. I never had anything too terrible. I mean, there are a few stories you can we can all tell, I think, going to school in a situation like that. But you do have to, you learn pretty quickly that you have to like assimilate or people will be like, why are you talking like that? Like, or, and when you change to be more like standard English, people are like, oh, you're so articulate. You speak so well. And you're like, oh, God, you can't win for losing. I don't know how exactly to word this question, but did you, were you surprised then to encounter the situation and the dynamic with this friendship group in Shanghai, maybe in boarding school or these other situations in the U.S., there was more context. But mm-hmm. were you surprised or were you not at all surprised to experience what you experienced once you got into Shanghai? I think uh, a little bit surprised, but mostly I was surprised at myself. I think a lot of that is also anger with me for just kind of like falling asleep at the wheel with a lot of this stuff for so long uh, and just not demanding uh, that it be more of an issue uh, with my friendships and, you know, being a little bit more vocal about the instances of racism I actually experienced because you get so used to minimizing everything uh, when you go through things like that because you don't want to be, like, difficult. You don't want to, like, strain your friendships. So you kind of do it as, like, a knee-jerk reaction almost. But, you know, life has a way of changing facts. So it forced me to have to send money home. And at the same time, it forced him to be desperate enough to hire me because he was looking for a really talented English writing teacher slash manager for his Pudong branch. For, for me, it was a no-brainer, even if it did mean having to work with the races, because to be honest, a lot of jobs do. I fucking killed that job. But... That job, it killed me. Can you imagine being a talented black teacher and your boss tells you the parents won't like it if you hire other black teachers? Can you imagine smashing sales targets for a man who calls you a darkie So what would you do, right? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I tried to ignore this motherfucker the best I could. I helped myself to some of his higher paying clients and now I own my own education company. Um, But I couldn't go through all that and not become more aware of my blackness and how I'd minimized it for white comfort. I had been so silent 
about all of my interactions with this motherfucker. <laughs> and the least I could do was share this rage with my friends. And from them I received like perfunctory like reactions of disapproval and like feigned shock, like I can't believe he would. But I never got any firm rejection of this motherfuckers. Anti-blackness, no resounding shun. And it hits me, do, do my friends know that they're hypocrites? Do, how can they justify shunning a racist who says, well, I just don't like black people, and embracing and befriending and maintaining a friendship with somebody who tried to dehumanize me? Clement had come to terms with the tepid response that the friendship group he counted himself a part of was unable to draw the line with someone who was actively spouting racist sentiments. Shanghai's a small place, and part of the strong reactions around this story boiled down to the fact that some of the characters involved in it are still here and heard that Clement had written and spoken about it publicly. I wanted to know more about the fallout with Clement's group of friends and what compelled him to finally put this story on paper. Did this motherfucker <laughs> hear the story, to your knowledge? <laughs> uh, well, I had already, like, blocked him on all, like, social media, cut all ties with that guy, so, like, I'm not particularly interested if he read it or not. Uh, I know for a fact that he p at least heard about it because a lot of the people who maintain friendships with him uh, messaged me and they were like, I'm so sorry. So I'm sure they at least brought it up that this piece had been written. Um, so that was nice to hear, but I also take those apologies with a grain of salt because these are the same people who were like, oh, you know, he's like really racist. But they never seemed like they were calling him out on it. It was, they were always putting it on me, like, to just deal with it. What about that group of friends? I mean, have you rectified relationships with any of them, or have you... Well, there are two friends that that piece is more directly about who still live in Shanghai. Uh, well, one in Shanghai, one in Hong Kong, actually. But we were still part of the same core group, and I didn't tell them that I was writing that piece or publishing it. Uh, so I kind of blindsided them, but that was also kind of intentional. Uh, one of them I haven't talked to, one in Shanghai I haven't talked to, at all. And the one in Hong Kong like recently sent me a message right before Christmas vacation. I was like, oh, hello. So I responded, but I kept it pretty, pretty brief because I'm not really interested in making them comfortable uh, with starting a friendship with me again unless they're going to address the, the issues that I, I outline. Do you feel like the close friends you had and had made at the time you published the Medium piece, were surprised to read that piece from you? Um, the close friends in Shanghai, who the piece are more about, or my friends in general? In general. Uh, yes, they were. Particularly the parts about, I think there's something about a slur that really gets people to like, oh my God. I don't know if you remember when I told the story and I kept that part in the written version and the uh, spoken version. But the part where I said that he called me a darkie, 
people like audibly gasped in the room when I said that because I feel like that kind of racism people are just shocked by that somebody would do that to a person but I can pretty much assure you that every black person has been called a nigger or a darkie at some point by a non-black person in a hateful way um yeah at some point in their lives we all have the story the time we were called you know so you but, think people in general are much more comfortable with the the microaggressions form of racism mm, than actually being confronted by yeah definitely because i had a few friends uh, mostly white friends be like i can't believe that happened to you like and it's always like you seem so happy go lucky i'm like well i what, i can't internalize it yeah, yeah like, <laughs> if your friends were surprised to read that piece to a certain extent that meant that you hadn't been vocal about those feelings, those dynamics with them. What actually prompted you to take pen to paper? Um, to be honest, there there was a transition over a few years that happened when you start reading uh, all these stories about like black people being gunned down, falsely imprisoned. Uh, you can't. I mentioned that in the piece also. Like you can't really sit through a lot of these stories of people who are like you. Uh, going through these things while a lot of your your white friends are completely silent, right? So because it makes them uncomfortable or for whatever reason, right? So uh, after a few years, two, three years of absorbing these stories uh, and thinking to myself, like, why am I even, what am I getting out of being quiet about this? Uh, Am I even friends with people who actually understand me uh, the way I would like to be understood? So I think that was the main issue, like, because I felt like they never correctly addressed the fact that they maintained a a relationship with this person who tried to dehumanize me, right? Um, And they felt like I was just supposed to get over it. That's the feeling I had. Like, they were just like, oh, well, you know, Clem will be Clem, and he'll, like, just deal with it like he normally does. I wanted to show, like, no, fuck you. (laughs) I don't have to deal with shit. You deal with this. So that's really what prompted it. You're talking a lot about seeing unjust things and kind of calling people to change or calling people to action. Is that a hard thing to feel and, and juggle when you're living in a place like Shanghai? And is writing a way to deal with that? Yeah, writing's always kind of like my way to work through a lot of different conflicting emotions or thoughts. I think it's hard to see some of the things that happen here and not want to comment on them. I think writing is definitely one of the most powerful tools to bring about change, which is why you can't read certain books or, uh, yeah, certain writers are banned or blocked or censored or jailed or, you know, all over the world, right? So if writing wasn't a powerful tool, then... Nobody would feel threatened by it. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. To some people, I think they just took the opening line and the final line very literally Mm. and felt like Clement on stage is telling me he will never be my friend. Mm. Yes. How would you... (laughs) How would you respond to or engage with people who took that away from the story? Uh, Have you ever seen guys interact where, like, one guy has his arm around the other guy's, you know, shoulder? 
they're walking together and he just like suddenly like gut punches him real quick like playfully but a little hard and the guy's like oh and then he's like oh it's okay walk it off that's the reaction i would like just for them to be like oh i'm not that hurt okay i'm not that hurt like come on like if that hurt you imagine what it's like to be black and deal with this shit right like come on you'll be fine you know you just had to sit through this for 11 minutes you're good like you can't be that hurt move on and do better that's what i would like the reaction to be like man think about the times you've put your friends of color in that situation and never even considered their feelings just thought, oh well you know okay They'll be fine. Yeah, we will be fine, but that's not really the measure of, like, you being a good friend to yeah, me. Yeah, no thanks right? to you. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that would be a reaction that I would hope for. Because anytime you put pen to paper, it's an act of hope, you know? Like, you hope people will read your words and do better. I had a lot of conversations with my friends for three years because it's hard to walk away from a meaningful relationship. But after three years, you just, you get tired. So finally, we arrive at what I didn't know then was the last conversation. And one of my white friends is sitting across from me at a bar, not unlike the one where our friendship started. And he shrugs at me. Well, I don't think I'm gonna be able to give you what you're expecting. And at this point, I've gone from not demanding much of white people to not expecting much of white people. So I ask him, oh, yeah, and what is that? And he says, I I think you're expecting me to stop being friends with him. So I say to my friend of 10 years, actually, I don't expect anything from you except for you to be who you are. And that is why I can no longer accept applications for white friends. Clemens' relationship with that friend changed that night, and it set off a new course for him in his relationships in the city and with the city. It also initiated a process of self-reflection that affects how he carries himself and how he approaches friendship. Clem's story had ripple effects on so many people who heard it, and we think it's a perfect example of the power of storytelling. At the end of our conversation, I spoke with Clem about the hopeful side of his writing. I knew we'd be friends because of that hug. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> like, see, I'm not, I'm not all of you guys are bad. Look, I'm hugging this super <laughs> <Right>? white girl. <laughs> I have white friends. Come on. How bad could I be? I told one of my friends, I wouldn't say that the door is closed completely to white people, but it's like, there's a key. You got to work it. Right. Like you Figure can't out expect- how to open this door. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a key at the bottom of the door. You jiggle the handle a bit. <laughs> it just may unlock if you put enough effort in. Right. Yeah. So. Fair enough. Yeah. You say that putting a pen to paper is an act of hope. Mm. Same with putting a mouth to a microphone. Definitely. Definitely. Um, whenever you're trying to hopefully if you're trying to make people uncomfortable, that's where growth happens, right? It doesn't happen if if I just say, well, you're trying. It's like, are you, though? <laughs> are you trying in the ways that uh, your, your friends of color need you to try, right? Because we probably need you to try harder. Stories are very powerful things. So Unravel, for me, mostly it means power. Uh, so, for example, you were nice enough to come to my class uh, at NYU Shanghai to give a talk about the power of storytelling. You shared the story of a Chinese man named Han Ting, who uh, the title of this story was Proud. And the main idea of his story was he was proud to be gay, but he was also proud uh, to have a Chinese family, uh, even though they were a little traditional and didn't accept his homosexuality. So... You shared that story with my class, and shortly after you left, I had them write responses to what you shared. And two of the students in class felt really empowered and supported enough to actually say that they were gay in writing and say that his story really resonated with them. And they talked about their experiences with their own families um, and how they felt like they couldn't tell, um, but that they felt some sense of strength and support just reading that story. So I think uh, that's the power of Unravel, right? It it shows that like we may all be unique, but we're not alone. We all have similar experiences. Yeah, honestly, I could not, <laughs> I, I like could not handle it when you told me that the next day. That was probably one of the nicest and most special things anyone has ever said to me. Mm. And it was really cool to to number one that you came all the way to Pudong to to share it's not that far <laughs> it's far it's farther than a lot of people would travel uh for free <laughs> and the payoff for that moment was uh was was excellent that was so interesting because I didn't really know what to expect of course you you briefed me on as much information as you had but I didn't really know what to expect going into that class first of all I was so struck by I mean I thought all those students were super insightful and, mm. and really engaged to a level that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, It was interesting because we had them read the story and then we did a little bit of a group discussion. And mm. a couple of people said some really interesting things, I remember. But, you know, nobody got really yeah, into, into it. it right. And by the time I left, I was like, that was really fun. Those kids were so bright mm. and really engaged. Don't know if they connected with the story, but... I had a great time, and I'm so glad Clement asked me. Yeah. And then the next morning, you sent me that WeChat message, mm. and I just started crying. It was yeah. it was so incredible. Yeah, and two, because the two students who wrote it had asked if they could email it to me personally instead of sharing it with the class, and I said, yeah, okay, sure. And uh, so that's why the next morning I, I told you, because wow. I hadn't read it until, like, uh, that night. 
And I haven't actually had the opportunity to tell um, Hunting about that story yet. Uh, Ah, yeah, I'm sure he'd love to hear that. Yeah, I didn't really want to tell him on WeChat. I really want to get the chance to tell him in person. Mm. But I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine how that would make him feel. Yeah. I think that's a good segue for me to ask you, Clement, is there a motto that you live by? Yes, absolutely. Um, My motto is run toward fear, not away from it. So I was, you know, we always live in fear. So for myself, as an example, I I was afraid uh, when I wrote the piece originally that uh, because I was so rusty that it wouldn't be any good. Uh, And even after it got a really big response on social media, uh, I was afraid when the opportunity to do Unravel came that I couldn't talk in front of a hundred plus people and tell this story live. Um, and I was so nervous. I like didn't eat the whole day. Couldn't even keep food down. Couldn't look at food. Uh, yeah, I was super nervous and very scared that I was going to like mess something up. Uh, and, uh, yeah, even after all that, like you're always, you you have like this fear, right? All the time, uh, that you're not going to be good enough, that you're just not enough and that you're not doing enough. So uh, I did Unravel because I was scared shitless to do Unravel. I love that. Yeah, I was terrified. So I was like, okay, now you have to do it. Because that's my motto now. Whenever you're afraid, you have to do it. I love that. Yeah, but it it's scary. <laughs> and for the record, you appeared to be a total natural. It, it shocks me to hear that you were that scared or that starving at the time. Oh, my because God. Even when I was listening back to the story, you you don't feel that fear, for sure, as really? an audience member. Well, I'm happy to hear that because, you know, <laughs> speaking of fear, I'm afraid to go back and watch it because I, I feel like all I'm going to see is the mistake. So I haven't seen anything since uh, I actually did the, the the storytelling. So Well, I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Okay, yeah, it should be exciting. Well, I'm so glad that you came in and talked to us, Clement. Thanks for sharing more about your story and about this story. I'm really glad we got the opportunity to talk about it. Well, thank you for having me. I had a blast. A special thanks to Clement Courtney III for sharing his story with us. Today's episode featured clips from his story, but you can listen to the full version at www.unravelstorytelling.com. This podcast is produced and edited by Sarah Borbor with original music and post-production by Ricardo Valdez. We're recording in the Nowness studio in the city where there's a McDonald's on almost every corner these days, Shanghai. I'm your host and the founder of Unravel, Clara Davis. Thanks for being a part of our story. Next week, we're taking a short break for Golden Week, China's national holiday. So we'll be bringing you a special bonus episode. I uh, went down the rabbit hole that is the internet, and I uncovered this whole world of whistlers. There were websites and, and this incredibly active Yahoo forum, and I found there were competitions. And I found one called the World Whistling Convention, which is the most prestigious whistling competition in the world. I see a lot of people laughing, but I'm, <laughs> it's true. This is, it's big. <laughs>